0: Hi, and welcome to Madness to Magic and my podcast, I'm with Crazy, a love story. I'm your host, Paulina Milana, author of The S Word. This show is for those of us who find ourselves surrounded by madness and wanting to find the magic within. We're going to come together here as caregivers to those who have been diagnosed with a mental illness. Maybe it's someone in the family we've been born into. Maybe it's someone we love. Maybe it's someone we work with maybe even it's ourselves. Whether we've been thrust into this caregiver role or taken it on by choice, this podcast is where we're going to share our stories and learn to realize the magic in all the madness we may have been experiencing. I promise you, it can be done. So let's get to it. Hi, everybody. We are back. Thank you so much for joining us. This is Paulina, uh, Madness to Magic. I'm with Crazy, a love story. And today I am definitely with someone who has been part of my love story uh, ever since we met. Um, I am here with Tom Brodeur, if you want to say a quick hello.
1: Hi, everybody.
0: Hi, everybody. Isn't that an awesome voice? And if you saw him, he is gorgeous. I used to call him my baby daddy. Sadly, that's not to be. So, And that's a whole nother podcast. But Tom is actually um, really one of the people who I consider not only a friend, but a mentor, someone I have learned so much from. Ironically, he used to work for me way back when, which, boy, that turned around pretty quickly. Um, and he has really uh, built his own kind of empire's multiple times over and over his own businesses. He has built brands um, for companies worldwide. Uh, he is now the founder and CEO of a global beauty and fashion company. He um, actually uh, is, is the leader of an international beauty competition that has really taken off. Um, he Works in e-commerce with fashion brands, uh, beauty brands. And really, if there is a, a, a phrase to describe him, um, I like to call him the beauty boss. Uh, and that is really what he is. Um, he, he's just an awesome guy. And yes, I'm going on and on and on because, damn it, he's not my baby daddy. Um, but uh, anyway, today, while we are talking to Tom, and I'm really thrilled about this podcast, is because tom tom is very unique he um as you know this podcast i'm with crazy a love story is all about navigating madness and um, finding the magic within specifically for people who have found themselves in roles of caregivers Um, it also has to do with those of us who are seen by the outside world as those who can take care of others, those who do it all, those who don't need help. Tom fits into both of these kind of buckets. And one of them, and I want Tom to kind of start out and talk with us about that, he he was a caregiver kid. Um, and I'll let him kind of explain what that means. Uh, it was just he and his mom. And then he grew up and continued to be caregiver to everyone. Um, people he worked with friends, etc. And that's the first part we're going to talk about. Then I'm going to ask Tom to move into another much more personal, um, aspect of when madness kind of comes home and <coughs> when it, when it takes root in yourself and what to do about that when you are such a strong, um, person, uh, so I will stop talking. You know how hard that is for me. Um, and Tom, you can, you can stop laughing now. You have to actually speak. Um, but uh, so Tom, um, hello again. Hello. And if you would kind of just give kind of a little bit of background, right, as the caregiver kid, and really how you kind of rose, came out of that, and a little bit of all the things that you have climbed the ladder to succeed in, and we'll go from there. How's that? Sure.
1: Thank okay. you. Um, thanks, everybody, for, I guess, tuning into this and, and listening uh, to a little bit of, of my story. This is an honor. Um, it's a privilege to get to share uh, parts of who you are and parts of where you've been uh, with complete strangers in the hope that maybe some of what you hear, if even one of you, something that's useful to you. Um, I hope that will be the case. Uh, For me, I was uh, born outside of Miami, Florida uh, to a single mom. My mother and father met in the military. They were both in the Air Force. They served during the Vietnam War at Pearl Harbor at Hickam Air Force Base in Hawaii. My mother was a sergeant. My father was a personnel and staff major. Uh, because he was flat-footed and nearsighted. Thanks, Dad, for all that, appreciate it. (laughs) I have both problems now. Um, My father decided after two years of marriage uh, and about two months before I was born that he did not want to be a dad and he did not want to be married. And so my mother uh, and my's life started off uh, sort of as she would describe it later, me and you against the world. And um, I was born blue, not breathing, with the cord wrapped around my neck. Uh, My mother uh, had had a really difficult birth. Um, She had only dilated the size of a nickel and I was born six minutes later. So there was a lot of tearing, breaking, fracturing that happened. My mother was in traction for a year, could not walk for a year, uh, the first year that I was born. Um, I had a bruise from the the base of my skull to the tip of my tailbone um, because I compressed in the birth canal and then sprung sort of open like not not the way babies are normally born. So I made some grand entrance, I guess you could say, (laughs) a little faster than certain bodies were able to allow for. Um, My mother was uh, a single mom until I was five. She met my stepfather. Uh, We had moved to Northeast Ohio, from Southeast Florida to Northeast Ohio, so that my mother could find work. Um, Along that way and during that path, we were on welfare and food stamps and no babysitters, no caregivers. My mom working in a bar downstairs, me putting myself to sleep and all of that as a a one, two, three-year-old above the bar. And uh, about two years old, I had a bad experience with a respiratory issue called at the time croupy cough, and I was hospitalized for three weeks in a plastic tent uh, for oxygen uh, purposes. So if any of you have have ever seen the movie The Boy in the Bubble, I was one of the inspirations for that movie, uh, my story, at two and a half weeks as the nurses in the hospital would declare later. Mr. Independent decided he was all done living in plastic. I began taking the bubble down because, you know, I thought it was nice to organize these things at two years old and find my way free. My mother got remarried when I was five. They were married until I was nine. My stepfather was persona non grata. He was really not around, uh, worked a lot. He and my mother had a business together. My mother was the brains and he was the brawn, I'd like to say. Um, At nine years old, that divorce was final and it was me and her against the world again. Um, So I learned at a very early age from eight and a half to nine years old how to care for myself. My mother worked multiple jobs uh, to take care of us, or me and her. Um, No other siblings uh, at the time. Nobody else but the two of us. So there was a lot of time where I can remember my mother going to bed hungry, uh, but I did not. I remember there were a lot of times uh, growing up through my, my double-digit birthdays uh, from 10 years old till about 15 years old where every odd job that I could do, whether it was cutting grass or um, hedge trimming for the neighbors or raking leaves or babysitting kids, uh, would be rolled up in penny nickel and quarter uh, papers, and they would be used along with my mother's paychecks to pay our bills. So um, at a very early age, I learned the value of hard work. Um, I also um, had a parent who tried her best uh, to create opportunities for me to still be a kid. She would, she would break me out of school and we would play hooky together on those rare times where she had time off. Um, because I didn't get to do a lot of that. I didn't do a lot of the things my peers and my contemporaries did when I was in grade school, middle school, and high school, because I was working. And, um, and work was a means of survival. And I would learn throughout the course of my life that work became survival for me in a lot of ways. And, um, and I guess we'll talk a little bit about what it feels like when you're not sure if you can survive when that whole work scenario changes.
0: So, knowing you, I know there's even more to this story, right, even before we get to when the work scenario kind of changes. I want to just touch base a little bit on, first of all, thank you for kind of the the early years, right, Tom, little Tommy, the early years, yeah. uh, and the stories of your mom and, and what what your mom did try to do, right, because everybody's trying to do the best they can in any scenario, and we all know that. Yeah. Um I'm wondering for you, did you ever, when you were really kind of growing up, realize, wait a minute, this isn't how everybody else kind of seems to live? Or did you ever have that, well, this isn't fair. Why why me?
1: You know, it's a good question. I never, you know, I guess I just was raised, and maybe it's just my personality. Maybe it's that's even more than, maybe it's my nature more than my nurture. I've never been a person who's been particularly self-pity oriented or how come this or why that I just I've always had this perspective that what is at this moment is what is and if I'm supposed to learn something from it I will even if it's not an obvious lesson at the moment um, it'll come to me at some point if I'm supposed to grow from it I'll grow if I'm supposed to look back at it later at some other time in the future and reflect on it for something I will. So I never grew up with this idea of um, which one of these is not like the other and how come I am not? And how come there is no dad? And how come my situation has financial struggle in it? And how come I have to work? It, It just really, I became a person who at a very early age just recognized that we're here to lift others I believe, Um, and in this particular case, through my childhood, my mother was part of that journey. I was there to lift her, and um, and maybe by doing so, set an example for other people, uh, whether they were my age, older, or otherwise. So, I never felt like a victim. I never felt like I didn't have a dad, and what was me or mom's always struggling, woe is us, or I don't get to do the things the cool kids do because we can't afford it, woe is me again. It was, we are where we are. We'll do the best with what we have, but we won't always be here. So I, I was raised, this is definitely nurture, not nature, because I, I, would, I will later say that as I grew in my life, um, I learned to be a learned optimist and pragmatist about a lot of things, My mother would say to me all the time, whatever the goal was that I wanted to set for myself, whether that was to achieve something as an athlete or to achieve academically or student council or something else relative to the school years, she would always say to me, you are greater than your circumstances, Thomas Michael, so go be great. And I took that to heart and I really did try to apply myself in many, many ways. You would later learn as you get older how much pressure that is to operate under? How much you then internalize those encouraging words uh, in certain ways that may or may not be healthy for you uh, as you grow up? And and I would I would hit that that mountain and that wall um, mm-hmm. at forty-seven years old, which was just three short years ago. It seems mm-hmm. like so long ago and yet so much has been learned since that time
0: Mm -hmm. well so much has been learned throughout your entire life right and i do love i mean one of the things that i remember you taught me was you are greater than your circumstances so that definitely is a pay it forward (laughs) that I have used even with others. So Good. thank you for that. I'm glad. And thank your mother. That. Yes. Um, but I, I wanted to talk to you a bit about um, just just staying in that moment of caregiver kid, right? The child who, sure. you know, before you even get to what happens in college, et cetera. And mm-hmm. You, who, who knew? Like, you know, one of the things for myself, one of the things even with the CASA kid that I have, um, the court appointed special advocate uh, kids in foster care one of the things that really has kind of um, come up for me is kids who are in these roles as caregivers right of the adults or themselves or you know often are keeping it all secret right sure and the question i have for you is when you were going through all of this i mean for goodness sakes you were a toddler living above a bar, right, mm-hmm. if I remember correctly, you even fell down the stairs at one point, broke your leg, yep. correct? Yep. So. You.
1: That was that was a year of great health challenges. We had creepy <laughs> cough when I was two, broken leg when I was two. Yeah. But you know, good news is no head injuries after eighteen. Well, that's, well that's, de- that's debatable. <laughs> that's <coming>. That's debatable. <laughs> that's anyway. in
0: chapter two. No, so, <laughs>
1: that's the next podcast. <laughs> that's the right. next one. The part, brain right. damage, exactly. yeah, that really. I've from We probably
0: since are going to have to do a couple of parts on this one. <laughs> I'm but, sure. Because seriously, like the life you have lived, really would have taken down. Let's call them lesser people, right? People mm-hmm. who just didn't have that foundational core or spirit or whatever we're talking has really driven you through, um, which makes you very remarkable, even though at times we don't feel remarkable, right? Mm-hmm. There are things that kind of do take us down, we'll, we'll, and we'll talk about that. But in terms of childhood, and who knew like that all this was going on, right? Nobody. You Nobody.
1: You know, I guess um, one of the things that we didn't talk about is I am also a survivor of child abuse. Um, I was, I had a family member, not my mother, but um, a very close family member uh, who violently raped and molested me from the age of, of six to eight and a half years old. And, <clears throat> and that was a secret that I kept. Along with the, I have to be strong because others will be hurt if they hear this news. And I think when you're in those, I understand that you know psychologists say the most formative years are X to Y. But when you go through things as traumatic as what I experienced uh, from six to nine years old, they are also quite formative in many, many ways. And so I figured if I could keep that secret, um, and it was a horrific secret to keep and an even more horrifying story to tell when I finally was able to open my mouth and speak the words. I could keep any secret, no matter what the pressure was, no matter how hard things felt, no matter how difficult the times were, it was okay. And so there were times even with my mom where the short-temperedness that became a single parent under enormous pressure to do all the things and make sure the kid was okay and she was okay and all those things, where she was rough. Um, she was unfairly heavy-handed, right, when it came to discipline. And my mother and I have, have grown a lot through that with one another and talked a lot through those things over the years. But um, all of those become... Secret-keeping for me became a tool. Um, the ability to survive what might be next was that I could tuck it away and I could organize it in a place where... I only had to look at it if there was someone in front of me who needed the help, and I could pull that tool out. And that's legitimately how I always looked at um, the secrets that I kept, was that they were meant to be tools used for others, Um, and it wouldn't be until many, many decades later that I realized how much I needed those tools to have been exposed to help me, Mm -hmm. my own self. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, you condition yourself, right, for certain things,
0: Yeah. so... Wow. Um, you kind of eluded um, to the fact that you while, you, while you just kind of went along and made the best of things, right? So in my words, making magic out of all the madness that sure. you were encountering, were you ever, like, did you ever feel, I'm completely alone Or did you have others around you, and how important were they? Um, Whether they're, like, physical people or other things, like, uh, talk to those, those forces that actually, perhaps really did make a difference and how important those are, whether or not you're related.
1: So this may sound woo-woo to some of you listening to this podcast, but um, but I grew up with a very, very deep faith in God, not in universe, not in divine, not in power, not in special light, in God, God that we've learned about in the Bible and we're taught about and all those things. And for me, um, he was my best friend. And so... And I did have, I did have a couple of good friends. But maybe only one who really knew all the things and knew all the depth of what I'd been through and. Um, and uh, his name was Sergio. I lost him eleven years ago to cancer. I uh, was my very best friend and basically closest thing to a brother made friends. Scott and Brandy I was very close to, but not even as deeply close as I was to Sergio. Those were the three human beings that I felt like I could talk about most things with. Sergio I could talk to about anything. Um, But I spent a lot of time talking to God because it kind of felt like he was my dad because I didn't have one of those. And so I really didn't share a lot. Um, Most of my life from Probably junior high school and beyond, I had this nickname, Teflon Tom. <laughs> and that was that, you know, that bright smile um, always had a shiny coat and an armor on. Um, and that if, if it hit me, it would just bounce off and slide down. That was people's perception. Because that's the perception I wanted them to have. Uh, because then that meant they wouldn't ask. That meant there would be no prying. And in truth, outside of Sergio, Paulina is the first friend I ever met who I think the investigative reporter in you, um, the prior, the person who digs for let's go further, let's go further, let's go further. Do you know why you do that? Do you know why you think that? Do you know why you say that? Like being interrogated. <laughs> um, I my think.
0: husband has called me the interrogator, <laughs> the interrogator. so you're yeah. spot on. True there.
1: story. That's the brand. Uh, this Power Lena thing may be different. Interrogator <laughs> might be the real thing. But um, I do think that uh, I, I relished in that description because it kept me safe and it made me feel powerful. Mm-hmm. And uh, my power was my ability to deflect,
0: honestly right yeah right because if you have that armor on right right, there is less of a chance of getting hurt that's right right. until you can't hold on to it anymore right? right you can't keep that up anymore that's right so so let's kind of um just talk a little bit kind of fast forward sure so a lot of madness swirling around you from young age um and really keeping so many secrets and keeping it together and keeping this facade of, you know, powerful Tom, if we just call it that. And you have excelled, like you have done things professionally that people just wish to do. Can you just take us a little bit on the companies you've built like just you know what I mean like that whole kind of trajectory of how you were climbing that ladder to I don't know maybe you know uh, uh, uh the ladder was against some mountain that really wasn't your mountain or like let's talk a little bit about that and and your progress in the work world
1: well I like to say that my career was accidentally on purpose <laughs> um
0: what do you mean by that well on
1: purpose because uh growing up I excelled academically mm-hmm. I did very well in school it was a, a good outlet for me uh it was a place to be responsible it was a place. it was a place to kind of own my own thing um so my grades you know I graduated and you know I think seventh or eighth out of you know just a couple of hundred um high school kids, and that was good. It's National Honor Society, um, scholarship to go to college, um, would later go through school and then earn several master's degrees, um, paid for by companies, thankfully, because I couldn't afford to pay attention after I got out of undergrad and was in debt until I was in my mid-30s, all of that. Um, But for me, I, I, I think sometimes I would accidentally show up at things or in places or circumstances and then see what was there and then purposefully drive toward it. So, um,
0: so the ability to actually see kind of the opportunities, like see how it can unfold, make those connections. That has always been you ever since I've known you.
1: And and I think that has always been me in general. Um, like I just have always believed that if um, if you're willing to say yes to more things than you're willing to say no to, you may just be surprised. Mm-hmm. And I've been surprised a couple times <laughs> because of that in my career. Mm-hmm. Uh, GoDaddy is a great example of that. Um, I was working in the uh, in the beauty business way back in the early '90s, and was recruited after I left a, a sales job in a. Little technology company. I was recruited by a man named Bob Parsons, who was the founder of GoDaddy, to a company that was not yet named GoDaddy. Uh, the company was a company called Joe Max Technologies. That was the founding kernel of GoDaddy. I think I was the seventh or eighth employee, and I was hired to run marketing, and I could barely spell marketing. I had no idea what that meant. Um, but because I had some other previous experience that felt like it was aligned I met Bob and a woman named Barb Rectorman two very pivotal people in my career Um, at a bar of all places a bar was my first interview (laughs) true story and Bob was always a bit of a renegade, a little bit Maverick-like anyways, and anybody's ever heard any of the old GoDaddy radio commercials or now even the PXG Golf Club commercials, and you hear his voice. He's, I always say he's equal parts Yosemite Sam and and uh, and Foghorn Leghorn, just that deep, booming voice, very powerful, very whatever. And he looked at me after we had had a drink and a half, and i mine was seltzer water because I was trying to be really cool, and his was not, and Barb's was not either. And he looked at me and he goes, you're hired because you're going to do it. And I couldn't have probably 10 times said, but I don't know what it is (laughs) and what that means. And I would spend the next number of years there um, helping figure out what it was. And GoDaddy became it. And that was, I was the first chief marketing officer in my late 20s at a company called GoDaddy Hmm. that put that brand on the map. And um, even though nobody understood what we did in our Super Bowl commercials, nobody knew what GoDaddy was, everybody remembered the Super Bowl commercials. And so that was a a privilege and an honor, but it was one of those moments where I accidentally was brought into an opportunity and I thought, wow, this might be a place where I can go do something even though I don't know what the job actually means. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna try really, really hard to figure it out. And by the time I left GoDaddy, I was running marketing. I also had product development uh, under me, and I was one of the office of the CEO strategists uh, that helped sort of shape the, the future of that business. Mm-hmm. And would go from there to a number of other things, including, but not limited to Market Wire, which is where we met. Yep,
0: yep. yeah, definitely. Yep. Uh, I still remember that day. <laughs> Do you?
1: I, I still remember being terrified at the time I was <laughs> running the PR team uh, from an agency that was going through a review process and you were coming in to replace the head of marketing and I thought oh my god we're gonna lose our jobs we're gonna get fired because this woman doesn't seem like she's gonna want to keep anything her predecessor put in place that's exactly what I thought
0: in other words he thought I was a biatch and then we met remember and it was totally like oh my god like total gab fest like we were so like I was like oh my god I love him I'm not sure about anybody else but he gets to stay now
1: that was awesome. Yeah, yeah. It, was mm-hmm. it was fun. It was fun. It and was fun. And then it was really fun for a number of years until it, it was. wasn't.
0: Until it wasn't fun. And we'll leave it at <laughs> that. Just on that not one, right? That exactly. Our, our, wait
1: a minute. Are our, our gag orders are those released yet? Yeah. Anyway. Jk. Uh, okay, ish. Ish.
0: Ish. Operative. Ish. Ish. Um. All right. So clearly. Someone who has overcome a great deal. And sure. a lot of things you even left out, right? I
1: mean, yeah, dyslexia, speech impediments. <laughs> right. I was gonna say there things. were
0: quite a few things since you're sure. speaking. Like so who goes eloquently? into PR and marketing,
1: right. Right? right? When they have you know dyslexia and right. speech impediments when they're a kid. <laughs> right. I guess I exactly. do. <laughs> and not
0: only goes into it but excels at it, right? Oh, and then just keeps kind of reinventing himself, right? Sure. Climbing that ladder, taking care of everybody else sure. along for the ride, really, yeah. right? And then something happens. Mm-hmm. You get to a certain level mm-hmm. and, you know, I like to hearken it where you get to a certain level where you're, you kind of look around and you're like, are we the fuck there yet? Right. And you're like, okay, I'm, I'm doing this. I'm doing this. It's, it's coming to fruition. It's coming. And then bam, unexpected things happen mm-hmm. when your professional role, is something that you are incredibly good at. No question about it. Sure. It is often the thing that we kind of um, expect will always be there, right? That's right. Everything else may fall apart, but that, no, damn it, I can do that. hmm Until it falls apart. Sure. And so one of the things of this podcast that I really have kind of explored has to do with the very strongest among us are oftentimes... Those of us who need the most help, Truth. but nobody's even nobody, paying attention. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. We don't let them know, but That's they're right. not even looking for it, right? And they don't really want to look for it right. because if you are struggling, holy Toledo, what about me, right? right? So, talk a little bit about what kind of happened to you, and you can go in as much de- t- detail as you want or sure, not, Sure. Um, where you found yourself in terms of your own madness, mm-hmm. and maybe how you kind of have had to pull yourself out or still are pulling yourself out, right?
1: Sure. So, I mean, you know, when I think about it, <clears throat> the the real trajectory of my career started in 1999, right? When I joined the team at Joe Max that would later become GoDaddy. And then it continued from there. I mean, by the time I was in my early 30s, I was in charge of marketing, corporate development, mergers and acquisitions, and product development at MarketWire, which we would build together into the third largest news wire in the world, which was quite a steep climb. Um, with every kind of political nonsense you could imagine. Um, And then from there, uh, you know, went on and and sort of did a number of other really fun, exciting and remarkable things, always with an eye. Yes, the prize for me always was one day I'm not going to be number two or three. I'm going to be number one. One day it will be my turn. And I remembered thinking to myself, I was patient with whatever the process would be until it was my turn. And then when it was my turn, I'd get to do my own thing. I'd get to put my own stamp on stuff and all of that. And uh, that time would come 18 years later, right, in 2017. I had been recruited for almost a year uh, to a large e-commerce company that competed with the likes of Victoria's Secret and other swim and lingerie brands and had been recruited literally for almost a year to become its CEO. For me, it was the pinnacle of all the things. I'd been a head of marketing, I'd been a head of sales and business development, I'd been a head of corporate development, i have been a vice president, a senior vice president, an executive vice president, all the things you're supposed to do to check the boxes in your career. I'd become a chief marketing officer, a chief operating officer, I'd become all the C's. But the one that I wanted the most, the brass ring, and I, I finally, after being courted, 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 and I was working as a president and chief operating officer of another company that I loved. I had a blast doing what I was doing. I got to go to San Diego once a month for lots of meetings, which was great, especially in the summer in Phoenix, because everybody gets out of here, gets out of hell so they can go somewhere with a slightly better climate and more water. Um, and so I, um, I was excited about this opportunity, but I was also thoughtful and cautious The pursuit had been so aggressive. I was curious as to why. Um, And I dug as far as I could and as deep as I could in the diligence process. And then I put together a strategic plan for the private equity firm that owned that company. And I said, one condition of my employment with you and taking this role is that we review this strategic plan and that you approve it before I come on board. And they reviewed it and they approved it. And one of the board members of the company was the company's founder who I would replace as the CEO. And so then I felt really good. Like, okay, my fear, my worry, my doubt, my concerns, they're allayed at least a little bit. And seven days into starting my job, the beginning of 2017, my CFO calls me into the office and says, we have a problem. And I'm thinking, well, what possibly could it be? Do we have an inventory shortage of something? Do what, you know, what happened? Did the website break? And he said, uh, we tripped a financial covenant with our largest debt holder before you got here. This was a material financial fact about the company's financial situation that I was not made aware of before I signed my employment agreement with the private equity firm and the board of directors that hired me. It was the best thing I can describe it as was like walking into a propeller of of an airplane while the propeller was on. Because the two things I was faced with in that meeting were the company can go into receivership, bankruptcy. Um, They can foreclose on it. The debt holder can foreclose. I immediately pick up the phone after collecting all of the data and information from my CFO and determining how many... Expletives! I wanted to use with the board member that I would call who was my quote sponsor my direct pipeline with our board and um, I said what in the entire fuck is this was exactly how I opened the phone call and he said oh you know don't worry about it we have a great relationship with the bank Um, we're going to do this that and the other it's all going to be okay less than 90 days everything will be fine great not trusting that I hung up the phone and I picked up the phone and called bankers that I knew and said, here's what I'm dealing with, here's what the problem is, here's how I need to try to solve it, can you help me? Those bankers came back with a deal within a week and a half of my arrival. And that deal was a better deal than the one that we had with our current bankers, but it was not one that my board was in support of. Because it would have required what's called a backstop or a guarantee, which is more equity has to go against the debt. They would have to dilute themselves and their ownership in the business in order to make good on that debt, should that debt default. Their answer was no. Thank you, but no thank you. We'll work on this. We hire another banker, very big brand name investment bank, as a favor to our board and we start going through a process to try to refinance this debt. So now I'm managing a banking relationship that I inherited that was broken, unhealthy, and angry because of something done before I got there that was not disclosed to me, and I had to fix it because, well, I was the CEO. I have to take care of all 212 of these employees, and any decisions I make will or will not have a direct impact, and by the way, I had a warehouse staff of 102 people, 75% of whom were single mothers with children, who sometimes the only meal they would eat during the day were the peanut butter and jelly lunches that we served in our cafeteria so that they could feed their children. So now, young Tommy comes back into this, now I'm the CEO of a company, I'm reflecting back on single mothers raising their kids, eating one meal a day so their kids can be fed. My whole life comes full circle to me at 46 and a half years old in a company that I'm now worried about. What do I do? How do I keep all these people afloat? How do I make sure that Alejandra Jimenez goes home today with a paycheck? So there was a lot of pressure Fast forward, we did some really cool things. I was brought there to reinvigorate the brand. I was there to do a number of different things. Um, We became the official swim partner for Miss USA and activewear partner for Miss Teen USA. We launched New York Fashion Week fashion shows with our swim brand. There were a lot of things that we did really, really well. But the bankers could never get a deal done because the next deal that was brought to our board of directors required the same exact thing as the deal that I brought to them which was a backstop or a guarantee and the board said no a second time the third deal that was brought to the board didn't require a backstop or a guarantee it just required the board to write another multi-million dollar check to make up the difference between what the new bankers would pay off in the old debt versus the new banker what 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 was the difference between what was owed that was the third vote off the island so my last board meeting um, was in october of 2017 it was right before my birthday I would turn 47 years old I'm sorry 48 years old and um, I knew it was going to be a contentious board meeting because I made it very clear to my board we're not going to go through an operational review we're not going to go through a financial review If you've all paid attention to any of the reports that I send you on a monthly basis, you know what the condition of the business is in. We're growing very, 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 very slowly and very, not not as steeply as we should, but we are. But the only problem we're here to solve is the capital table issue that you have to fix because you're the ones that allowed it to happen. You're the ones that created it. I'm the one that walked in and inherited it. I've now brought you not one, not two, but three deals. You've said no, and now it's your problem to solve. I finally had a moment in my life where I said, no es mi problema, es tu problema. You can solve the problem. And so one of the problems they thought, one of the ways they thought they were going to solve the problem was they had this eureka moment in their marketing genius minds that we should take out advertising on porn sites. Now, as Paulina knows was having been a woman that I worked for and that later who reported to me, one of the things that has been a hallmark of my career is building strong leadership teams with women and with strong women, women that others would call bitches that I always respected as you have a voice, you have to use it, have a spine, stand steely, it doesn't matter what that boy says, if you know it's right, you do it. It doesn't matter what the other girl says, if you know it's right, you do it. And so half of my management team that I had built in the 10 months I'd been there were women. And they were sitting at that table listening to this offensive dialogue coming from men. And I'm not a me tooer. I'm like, you know, pick up your panties and move it forward, ladies, because we've got shit to do. But as a gay man, I had a unique, I think, and unique perspective on how to be respectful and thoughtful about gender-related objectification, whether it's through marketing or otherwise. And so I looked at one of the board members who was a minority shareholder of the business and I said, well, I'm pretty much open to anything, but that will happen over my dead body. I think were my exact words in this board meeting. I said, because that is number one, not where our customers go to buy lingerie and swimwear. If there is a woman who is our customer and 92% of our customers are women, not men, buying lingerie and swimwear for the women in their lives. Women. They're not going to porn sites to find ways to clothe themselves. That's not what they're there for. So I'm failing to see the connect. It's not going to happen with me because I'm not the guy that morally will sign up for that. At the end of that board meeting, the chairman of our board came over and put his hand on my shoulder and said, wow, that was a tough meeting. I appreciate your candor. I appreciate your clarity. I appreciate your conviction. The three C's. That I've been known for, and Paulina knows this, my entire career. Mm -hmm. And he said, and you know what? You're the right man to do this job because you stood up for what you believe is the right thing. Eight days later, they handed me a separation agreement without a parachute and said, you're all done here. That was the beginning of the unraveling of the one thing I'd worked my entire career to get to. Mm -hmm.
0: And so a couple things i'm going to say about you tom and you are correct you have always been the person where the buck stops here you have always been the person who actually kind of builds the teams builds the morale does the thing that is right not necessarily for yourself but for the organization right that you were hired for yeah you have built your own brand on being sort of, I know we joke about this, but Mr. Congeniality, right? You are always kind. You never kind of berate. You never point fingers. You never blame. You have done, especially in this particular incident, everything that you could do, everything that was right to do, right? Yeah. You... You stood the moral ground. You were helping the organization actually get itself out of the hole that you had nothing to do with putting, you know, with them being in. Yeah. And then you kind of got fucked. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 100%. Yeah. And we agree with that. Okay. 100%.
1: Okay. So. The only time I ever felt like a victim of something. Correct. Oddly enough. Mm -hmm. Not even when I was a victim of abuse Mm -hmm. did I feel like a victim. Right. This time I did.
0: And this time, if I can um, relate, you feel as if you were blindsided, hoodwinked, taken advantage of, mm-hmm. and you didn't see it coming. I didn't. And being the type, of
1: I was people, told eight days before, right? You're
0: the guy, right?
1: Thank you for standing up for what you believe in. Yeah. And eight days later, it was done. Gone, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: And so even with all that, right, mm-hmm. knowing that you had done everything, knowing that really they are the ones who are at fault, because identity is so tied in to what we do, sure. right, and all of those other people that you were, were taking care of, right, in the business, then comes the points of self-doubt the points of, I should have done this, or maybe, okay, wait, what happened here? Or all those voices mm-hmm. of chaos, mm-hmm. you went through that. I watched you go through that, which mm-hmm. which really, honestly, for somebody who knows you and somebody who's been through it herself, I will say it was incredibly unnerving mm-hmm. to see somebody who is strong, powerful Tom, right? always kind of knowing which was the next step to be lost in that. Remember how you said the, the clouds, they're so nebulous. You can't like, you couldn't piece them together. It's like lost. Talk sure. a little bit about that because I think that in this world, we, we may, may offer assistance to people who clearly are seen to need it, right? Sure. The people who either mm-hmm. mental health wise or otherwise, financial wise, we do rally. There is some support, and it's okay to say something like that right. that you need it. At this level, it's a different ball game. And I don't think there is either the support out there for it, nor is there the okay, It's okay to fall apart, Tom. Go ahead, right? right. You got to still keep it together. So talk a little bit about falling into that madness. And, and those feelings that you had, and then maybe a little bit of what started the path on getting out of it.
1: Sure. So I think for me, the first thing I thought and felt the day this happened was, what am I going to do now? Um, anytime I'd ever felt any ripples in my personal life or my professional life before... I was single. It was me and a couple of dogs. At this point, I have my mother living in my guest house. I have a husband, a stepson. I have in-laws living with us who are saving money to build their home. The roof over, over the head now is no longer just my own. There's not just a couch I can crash on if something bad happens here. There's a lot of people in my personal life um, that are affected by this, including me, so the first thing I felt was, what, what am I going to do? And I'm not a fearful person. I'm not a person who's really operated much of his life afraid of things, but I was for the first time in my life afraid because I had no plan B. There was no what's next. There was no answer to, there was no ability to go back to where I'd come from. Um, and so the fear was, was almost immobilizing. And then came the, I can't disappoint my husband and my kid and my family. Like, I got to figure something out really, really fast. So I went from being completely afraid, which was a foreign object to me in general, to feeling like I was a disappointment. Uh, because I failed at my first CEO job. I failed at it. Somebody said not good enough, for whatever the reasons. And then I struggled with the, should I have been morally ambivalent? Should I have not taken such a stand and such a position on a matter that it cost my family, their lifestyle? That it cost us that income. Then I moved to where do you go to try to get help for this? To try to feel your way through it. And um I recognized that my my husband um, at the time was someone who um, had been through so much of his own struggle before I would gotten come into his life. Uh, He'd been a single father, like my mother was, doing it on his own, trying to find his way, trying to figure things out. I didn't feel like I could go to him and ask for his help because I felt like I'm supposed to be here to relieve his pressure. That's what I'm here for. I couldn't certainly go to my mother, uh, right, because my mother was... Was part of my caretaking basket. Um, I didn't feel like I could go to my in laws um, because part of my family was living in our home. I felt completely alone. This is when, not when I was a little Tommy, not when I was preteen Tommy, not when I was teenage Tommy, not when I was young man Thomas. Mm-hmm. This was the first time I felt completely by myself on a limb, on a ledge, with more, more questions than answers, and no clear path ahead, which is the worst thing for a type A control freak who's planned his entire life out and finally got to where he wanted to go. It is the worst kind of gripping fear you can experience. And yet, somehow, I knew I could get through it because I'd been through, I kind of looked at it and I thought, I survived rape and molestation. I survived in an oxygen tent. I survived a traumatic birth. I survived no father. I survived a a mother who worked so hard that the disconnect sometimes between being mom and being caretaker and caregiver was huge. Um, I survived this meteoric climb in a career that wasn't supposed to happen. I survived dyslexia. I survived speech impediments and pathology. I'll be fine. This will be fine. But what if it isn't? And that what if it isn't part was the first time in my life I ever allowed myself. I'm now 48 years old, asking myself, but what if it isn't okay? What if there isn't an answer? What if the path ahead is nothing but a dead end? Then what? What will I do? And so began a spiraling And I think the first time I ever identified and recognized for myself a depression. I'd never felt depressed before. I never felt like I couldn't get out of bed before. I never felt every muscle in my body ache before. I never felt emotionally unstable before. And yet I felt like I could cry at the drop of a hat and that was not me. I felt like I just wanted to scream as loud as I could in as loud, as big of an open space as I could so nobody else could hear it, but I could feel it coming out of my body. Those were the kinds of things that I totally never didn't recognize. And I didn't recognize them in myself at all. I was like, who's this guy? Because I don't even know him. And where did he come from? And why is he here? And can you please go fast? Because I need the old Tom back. Because that guy knows the answers. That guy knows the way ahead. That guy knows the path forward. That guy knows how to get out of every dark spot and find the light. That guy will get there. And he'll get there fast. Where is he? I completely did not recognize myself for the next six months. And yet, I had to consult and go to work every day to try to make sure that the ends were met, make sure the bills were paid, understanding that I had created now a lifestyle for an entire family that was incredibly expensive because it was based on the earnings that I was earning. And my entire life changed where I went from making X in the high six figures to making Y in the low five figures. But nobody else's life was allowed to change, just mine. Is what I felt. And so I didn't open up to my husband. I didn't open up to other adults in my life because it was my problem to solve. The way I was raised by my mother was, if you've got the problem, you go fix it. And I didn't have the sibling, let's go be a team and figure it out together. Let's rake the leaves together. We'll get the yard done faster. It was never that way. It was always Tom had to do. And so Tom went to work trying to do.
0: Well, okay, so shame, embarrassment,
1: uh not knowing. Well I mean look, I was, you know, I just been for that same company I was nominated to be CEO of the year by the largest business awards in the state of Arizona. I had been listed as one of the most admired business leaders the year before. You know, and to go through this, so so the public shame of it was not as bad as I thought that I would feel, but the personal shame was enormous because I, I just felt like, how could I work so hard for so long and be so good to so many on my journey? I was not a politician that ever stood on other people's shoulders to get to where I wanted to go. I never stepped on knuckles. I never tried to deposition coworkers to curry favor. I was one of the good guys like you talked about, Mr Congeniality. I was one of those good people. How could this happen? To me. And I had, um. A lot of personal disappointment that I didn't see it coming. It's, a, I imagine it's like the way we feel when we're in a bad relationship, right? And we miss that oh, wait, how did I not know he or she was like that? How could I have not seen this is what that was about? And I felt that. So I felt duped. I think you used that word earlier. I felt um, I felt. after the fact that there were disingenuous intentions and motivations for bringing me there to begin with, Mm -hmm. that there was always a plan. And when an intelligent person who wouldn't go along to get along who had his own mind and his own thoughts about what ought to be, spoke about what ought to be. That was not part of that agenda. Mm-hmm. That was not part of the other plan mm-hmm. that I was dubious to and did not understand existed. And so the, sh- the shame comes from the losing the job, I'm gonna disappoint my family, I climbed so far, I worked so hard. For the first time i really went into not just a deep depression but a self-pity trip that was probably the ugliest kind of version of me there could be because i'd never done it ever in my life Um, my marriage suffered um i would tell you i was probably a a mediocre stepdad to my stepson at best i was a terrible son uh, because i i I all but just ignored uh, my mom uh, for this period of time because I just felt like I I need to have my own dramatic moment for a fucking change. Everybody else, put your shit on park. It's my turn to be good and fucking pissed and sad and mad and angry and all that. And I did all of that. Um, But I never asked for help. Ever. And so one of the biggest lessons that I would learn through that process was... I first finally was able for the first time in my life to allow myself to feel my way all the way through all the emotions, all of the layers of the failure. It really wasn't my failure, but the failure of the thing. But I still hadn't learned the lesson that there are people there that you should reach out to.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You should you should unlock your armor, Tom. We should allow people to see you as a vulnerable person, not as the person who always must find the way. Mm-hmm. And um, that was not a lesson that I would learn until just very recently, mm-hmm. probably the last five or six months mm-hmm. because of another life change, mm-hmm. um, but a
0: lesson I needed to learn. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> if, if you wanna share that with us, You can, if we want to talk in generalities regarding this kind of learning of lessons, and and again, you know, when when you had said, um, you know, you 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 basically you gave it your all, right? Yeah, and it just didn't fucking matter. It did. You still got fucked, right? And both in professional and personal, right? Yeah. Um, and and you do turn it inward because you wonder what an idiot i am for trusting right i should have been smarter i shoulda coulda woulda we play all those kinds of games because somewhere inside we still think we can control it all we still think we're supposed to Mm -hmm. be able to handle it all right right so when we're talking about everything that has happened to you What are, like, really the greatest lessons, and and how did you pull yourself out? I I know you're still kind of pulling yourself out, right, especially because of the most recent thing. Sure. But how does one, what's the advice for how do you get back to the magic versus swirling in that madness?
1: Well, I mean, I guess for anybody who's listening to this that is an entrepreneur or... A busy business person, or someone who has uh, enormous pressure on them to do well because others rely on you for it,
0: or because you yourself demand it you, of yourself, or, or right? Or because
1: you require mm-hmm. you know perfection or whatever you think is as close to that as possible. Right. Um, I mean, let's just you know call the the elephant out in the room. I my marriage um, fell apart as a result of this. And he, he was the most important um, male relationship, maybe outside of my best friendship with Sergio, that I'd ever had. And so uh, that, that marriage dissolving uh, both has taught me what a privilege it was to have that love in my life and to be the stepfather to our, our, his son, to our son that I was able to be. Um, but also probably even more devastating than the loss of the the C-suite position I'd always wanted. Um, and so I guess just to put that out there, uh, there are probably others of you listening to this podcast that can relate to what's the old saying... Um, When your personal life's falling apart, you're about to get a promotion, right? (laughs) Um, Or when your professional life's falling apart, you're about to fall in love. It's one of those kinds of, you know, moments. And I had both of them within a two-year span of time, two-and-a-half-year span of time. And so I think what for me the lessons were or are were really allowing yourself to feel the feelings. I I never did that before. So one lesson I learned was it was okay to do that. It was okay to feel the shame. It was okay to cry. It was okay to be sad. It was okay to be pissed off. It was okay to point at the other guy finally for a change and say, no, actually, you're the asshole. You did it. This was not my fault. Because I always had been a person who grew up with, what did you do? Not what happened. So I always was self-reflective and very inner-focused on I could have fixed it. I could have made it better. In this case, I had to admit I couldn't. Um, so it's important to admit. It's important to feel your feelings. Uh, my advice is feel them however ugly they get. They will get better. You will feel better at some point. The other lesson is ask for help. Reach out. Whether that's a counselor, a psychologist, a spouse, parent, a sibling, a best friend, a network of friends, ask. Mm -hmm. Don't think you are the only person capable of containing the stuff. Mm -hmm. You are not a container Mm -hmm. that's meant to expand and contract at the whim of how life happens. Mm -hmm. You're supposed to let it out. Mm -hmm. You're supposed to reach out, not just to give, but sometimes to get. I had never done that. Mm-mm. I was not a person who, I always felt the obligation went the other way. I'm here to do for you. Mm-hmm. You are not here to do for me. And so I think you have to change your mindset is another piece of advice. Mm-hmm. The, the being willing and able to accept help when you need it is not because you're weak. It's not because you're wrong. It may not be because you're broken. It may just be because you need it. Like, can I borrow a cup of sugar? I could do that with a neighbor and be totally okay with it. But not ask for, I need you, my significant other, to just give me more. I don't even know what more is, but I need more of it. Whatever you see Come to me first, bring it to me because I don't even know how to ask. Mm-hmm. I think it's really important to be okay with the gray area of not knowing mm-hmm. um, and being willing to being willing to surrender. I maybe think it's surrender is a word that has come to me a lot over the last two years. Surrender and know that what is best comes next mm-hmm. if you surrender. And don't get in the way. Mm-hmm. And I think for a lot of my life, I stood in the way of the obstacle. I stood in the way of the problem or what I thought was. And in some cases, I probably stood in the way of the opportunity to learn lessons earlier, mm-hmm. truth be told.
0: Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Because, whew, surprise, you're human. Oh my
1: gosh. Hey, oh my what? gosh. Shut <laughs> up, don't tell anybody. What? Don't tell them. <laughs> they don't know that. <laughs> no, I
0: know, I In know. In fact,
1: I think, my, I think my, my now ex-husband described me once as a emotionless, lifeless robot. <laughs> and you know, um, as offended as I was to hear those words, there was a time going through this that I was that. Mm-hmm. Because I barely recognized myself, mm-hmm. honestly. Mm-hmm. And it was. It was in the moment of hearing those very stinging words mm-hmm. that I remembered thinking to myself, oh my God. What a terrible thing for someone to feel. When it's the person they love the most, mm-hmm. because I was so unwilling to unlock. I don't even know that it was a willful thing, though. Mm-hmm. I don't think I knew how. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I think it self-preservation, right? right? And we think to ourselves, well, wait a minute. This me from yesteryear yeah. worked pretty damn well. Let me go back there. I right? can go find it. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of, oh, my God, wait, what's the next step? What, wait, what's the next step, True right? Story. And that's pretty freaking scary, right? Yeah. Especially when you have so many people depending on you, right? Yeah. And even in your head, Um When I, on one of the podcasts, believe it or not, I um, I had the great fortune of doing a podcast with my shrink of over 10 years. Oh, wow. And and asked her what she remembered of our time together. I mean, spending over 10 years with somebody, especially when she saw me for so long for free because I was so fucked up. Yeah. I wanted to hear her side. She said no one had ever even asked her that. Like, no one has come back and asked that. What is fascinating is that, She actually kind of spoke to resiliency. She spoke to what she saw in terms of going down a bunny hole. And honestly, she said what she also saw was a bit of arrogance or ego in that. You thought you were so great that you had to take care of it all, 100%. right? Right? Isn't yeah, well, that yeah. fascinating? Like it's a whole different way of looking at something. Well, it's true,
1: right? right? I mean, what? Any, Did yeah, you talk about it? No. Yeah. Go wait. Did I agree with you? Yes. Everybody. Everybody. Just let's strike that. that. didn't strike happen. Strike that from the record. Let's pretend it didn't yeah, happen. It didn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's. I think that's true in so many ways because when you think about achievement, when you think about someone whose life. Is wrapped up in that. You have to have a strong ego, a, a tough ego, because you do go through a lot of rejection. Even on the climb, you you know you hear of plenty of things. I mean, you heard nasty things said about me as a gay man at the company that we worked at, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, things that I yeah. n- never could have guessed yeah. were being talked about behind closed doors, things like that. Um, and I Or th- the. <laughs> Yeah, I'm that? sorry,
0: or the comment that we were petulant children. Petulant children.
1: children. Yeah. <laughs> God bless. Anyway, that cruise was awful. So <laughs> that's all I'm going to say. The food was terrible. And so was the company. But we
0: can look back. And so was and the, the laugh. company. And so was right. the
1: company, other than you. Other than but me, anyway, pet- um, but it was all kinds <laughs> of fun. I think for for me, the ego part was. It was actually less about arrogance than it was, again, about preservation. Like, I had to do it. I had to I had to be right. I had to have the answer. I couldn't be wrong. Not about this. Because now other people were going to suffer if I was wrong. Mm-hmm. And that's really, really hard to get right. your brain wrapped around. Mm-hmm. When it's just you, mm-hmm. you kind of get to sort that laundry on your own mm-hmm. and have that argument with yourself. Mm-hmm. When it's other people... You're not allowed to be wrong. Mm -hmm. That can't happen. Right. And in this case, I was. Yeah. I think the pulling out of it comes or, you know, starts to come from, at least for me anyways, you know, about six months into that mother, you know, necessity is the mother of invention, right? I was Mm -hmm. like, you know what? Beauty has been in my blood Mm -hmm. for since I was in middle school. Mm -hmm. When I was the, the gay middle schooler that didn't know he was gay yet, and I'm playing Barbie dolls with the girls in the neighborhood, and we're having beauty pageants with their Barbie dolls, there's something there. And so after all of these decades of having a technology industry career and a media and marketing industry career, I thought, what the hell? This company that I was at, that I just had the rug pulled out from underneath me royally, is in the fashion and apparel business. I'm one step closer. Why not go back to it? Why not go back to a thing I'd always been passionate about? Mm -hmm. And so began the journey Mm -hmm. of creating, you know, Broder, Kazangian beauty and fashion, and working through buying. You know, a domestic license to a U.S. beauty competition, ultimately buying a whole international competition, launching an e-commerce company that that showcases cosmetics, beauty, skin care and apparel brands and building this thing that was finally uniquely something I'd always loved. And so I began to pour myself into that in a way where um, I worked more hours than I've ever worked, and yet they say when you're doing what it is that is your passion, you never work an hour a day or a day in your life, right? And so to me it didn't feel, it was exhausting, it was grueling, but it didn't feel like work. It felt like doing the stuff that I love. But while I was doing that, I was very, very deeply engaged in the building of it because my self-righteous perspective about it was I'm building something for my family, And nobody will ever be able to pull the rug out from under us again. Damn it. Mm -hmm. That will never happen. Mm -hmm. And if there's going to be failure this next time, it's entirely and exclusively mine. Mm -hmm. And I know I'm not a failure, so it will be okay. Mm -hmm. And the outcome of that was I lost my marriage. So I wound up failing anyhow. Mm -hmm. At actually a much more important thing to me, Mm -hmm. which was being a husband and a dad. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so... The most life-changing, reshaping, and reimagination of Thomas Michael Brodeur, who for a period of years became Thomas Brodeur-Kazangian, is going back to Thomas Michael Brodeur, Mm -hmm. new and improved.
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) 2.0. 3.0. Some version of something. (laughs) And
1: recognizing that he's allowed, he's allowed to not know. He's allowed to be sad. He's allowed to ask for help. He's allowed to let other people lift stuff around him. Mm -hmm. He's allowed to be the guy that somebody else carries the baggage for on occasion. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to say, I wished I'd learned that sooner but being a student of life that I've been for 50 years now, we learn what we learn when we learn it. Mm -hmm. We learn what we learn, how we learn it. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we learn quickly. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we learn intelligently. Sometimes we learn at dramatic and significant expense to ourselves Mm -hmm. and sometimes to others. Mm -hmm. And I guess anybody listening to this who... Who is a parent, who is a spouse, who's in a relationship, who values others in your life, ask, reach out, show the vulnerability, say you feel broken, say you feel worn out, say you feel run down, ask the other person what can you put in the tank Because I don't have anything else to give. And I'm sad to tell you that. And I hate to admit it. And I'm ashamed that I did. Or that I am. Or that I feel like this. But do that. Mm -hmm. Because you may be surprised at what the other person is capable of. Mm -hmm. You may be surprised at where your well can be filled. And Mm -hmm. how. Mm -hmm. And from what perspective Mm -hmm. you might not be expecting. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's the biggest lesson for me, Mm -hmm. and I'm still learning that part. Mm -hmm. I'm going through that part now, Mm
0: -hmm. so. And what I have found is by you doing that, perhaps you were purposely put into this position to serve as a teacher for the other person to step up. Right? Right. Right? So the more that we think we gotta handle it all, the more we're not giving them the opportunity to actually rise, right? Fair enough. I will also add one more thing or two more things you have been given an opportunity, in my opinion, to redefine that word failure. Sure. Right? Because, you mm. know, there, there, there has been a story, the woman who created um, uh, the shapewear Spanx. Spanx, mm-hmm. um, I believe it was her. I hope to God I'm not getting this wrong. But she said that her father um, at the dinner table would ask them all at the end of every day <clears throat> the question, so what did you fail at today? And they would celebrate it because mm-hmm. unless you're failing, you're not trying. You're not learning anything. Sure. I thought that was totally cool, right? Yeah. So, and for you, the learning that Tom Brodeur can actually just be. He, I loved that you said, it's okay not to know. Right? Yeah. Because whenever I know that whenever I got stuck, I was like, first person in my head who will know the answer is Tom. Is Tom. <laughs> right? He'll know the next step to take, right? Sure. So the fact that you, you are embracing this kind of surrender and be my friend, it makes my heart sing um, because I am very happy for you on that. The other thing, too, that I will say is um, that Maya Angelou uh, quote about we did what we knew how to do right now we know better and we do better right and so while i know you say there is no plan right of what is coming etc if we were to fast forward not in terms of specifics of what you'd be doing Mm -hmm. but in terms of what do you want to feel what what if if everything is open to you, which I believe it is. (coughs) Mm -hmm. And you have surrendered. And now God Mm -hmm. is able to finally be like, well, finally you got out of my fucking way. Doofus right Right. now. I can work magic. Right. Right. What is it?
1: Mm. Um, going back to the conversation about, and maybe we didn't have it on this podcast. Maybe this was in our private discussion. I think many of us maybe not all of us maybe all of us i don't know um i won't be the judge of that but we we hang portraits above our mantle and that portrait is one that shape shifts over time in our lives when we're young that portrait has visions of our future when we're in our future that that portrait has the shapes and sizes and designs of the people places and things that are in our lives that we may expect to be there forever um i think the biggest lesson that i'm learning and the way i see the future is it's that old natasha Bedingfield, the the rest is still unwritten Mm -hmm. and it's okay that it is unwritten Mm -hmm. it's okay that you don't know what the next chapter fully looks like All you have to know is the first word Mm -hmm. in the next chapter. And and at least when I'm learning through this process, for me, going back to that portrait, you just need the first brush stroke. Mm -hmm. And the rest will happen as they're meant to happen. The colors, the canvas, the kaleidoscope, the people, the places, the things will show up as they're supposed to. So the best thing you can do is disabuse yourself of what the picture should be. And allow the picture to become what it's meant to be. And for me, I think that starting point is start with a fundamental belief in you're okay. Whether yes is the answer, no is the answer, or there is no answer to be had right Mm -hmm. now. And that is the biggest life lesson I think I've learned both professionally starting and then personally afterwards Mm -hmm. through this last two and a half years of the journey that I've been on. Mm
0: -hmm. You are my friend, and we'll close with this, but you are, to me, the epitome of the Japanese art where a vase is broken and then they fill in the cracks with the gold, right? Mm -hmm. Because it makes it stronger, it makes it more beautiful. Mm -hmm. So I know what you have been when you have been the guy with all the answers, etc., I really, I cannot wait to just see what now happens, that you are allowing these greater forces to actually kind of come in and take over. And you don't have to do it all yourself.
1: Well, I sure as hell hope we don't have a shortage
0: of gold. Because (laughs) we need a lot of it
1: for this busted up mess right now. (laughs) But thank you for that. I appreciate
0: it. You're (laughs) welcome. Is there anything left that you want to actually say? Not that this will be the only podcast we have. I have a feeling you've got many more in you. But anything that you want to...
1: Yeah, I mean, again, this is probably not going to sound terribly corporate or professional, but... Yay! yay. Um, while you are loving through your life the work that you do, <coughs> the people that you're with, the experiences that you're privileged to have, don't forget yourself in the process. Um, I have spent a lifetime of loving and caring for other people, places, and things to my own detriment. Uh, And I'm finally awake and recognize that there is a reason why on an airplane they ask you to secure your own oxygen mask first, because you're really a worthless pile to the little kid next to you, the old lady next to you, or the able-bodied person next to you if you're not breathing oxygen yourself. And so don't forget yourself. Don't lose yourself in the, the will to achieve. Don't lose yourself in the want to be the best husband, wife, brother, sister, son, daughter, father, mother. Don't forget who you are. Um, And don't forget to take some time to appreciate that. Don't forget to take time to ask other people to help you do better when you need it. then you'll be more worthwhile and more valuable to anybody else or anything else that you apply yourself to. And that's been a huge, I know it sounds so cliche and we always say it, but I'm, I'm living it now.
0: Mm-hmm. I feel it. Mm-hmm. So, Well, I think what you have shared today, it's going to help so many people. I hope. Oh, definitely, definitely. On so many different levels, right? I hope so. So, yeah. And can't wait until your book comes out. <laughs> And then the movie. (laughs)
1: Oh my gosh! (laughs) Oh,
0: I've got plants. I'll bet you do. No, well, Tom, thank you so very much, Um, and we definitely would love to have you back when the time is right for you and when there are other things that we want to discuss when I'm back in Phoenix or you in LA but to our listeners thank you so much for joining us this is another episode of I'm with crazy a love story and welcome anyone to share your own stories uh, comment below Um, and thank you again for being with us until we meet again thanks so much for listening to madness to magic and my podcast, I'm with Crazy, a love story. I believe we're all here for a purpose, and I know that this is part of mine. Please share this with anyone you think might benefit or might even have a story of their own to share. You also can visit me at madnesstomagic.com or check out more of my stories, including info on my book, The S Word, at paulinamelanawrites.com. I hope to hear from you and to join forces with what I consider a unique caregiver tribe, as we all learn to embrace all of ourselves, to have compassion for others, and to come into our full power by the grace that is both madness and magic. Until we meet again, I'll leave you with one of my favorite mantras. Be bold and mighty forces shall come to your aid. Thank you.